Trigger warning, this podcast contains a brief discussion of self-harm and panic attacks which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting, so please listen with caution. Another episode of Real Stories, a theatre and art series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. You'll know what time it is when you hear the sound of that intro music provided by Eka that I'll be checking in with someone who has been shaped by theatre and acting. Each pod, we discuss my special guest's theatrical career, the pieces of work that have meant the most to them, issues with the industry that they've faced, and their mental health journeys. This is Real Stories. <laughs> My special guest for this Real Stories episode, listeners, is Joseph Martin. Joseph is an actor who trained at East 15 Acting School and has starred in productions including Jeff Wayne's The War of the Worlds, The Immersive Experience, and Jude Taylor's new digital musical, Make Me Infamous. Me and Joseph also used to work together until very recently, but don't worry, there'll be no work chat here. Imposter syndrome, panic attacks, validation, sexuality, and more are all on the menu for this episode. This is Joseph Martin's real story. Joseph, welcome to Real Stories. I'm very excited for this pod and to check in with you as ever since you expressed an interesting event and I sent it over to you, you have shown nothing but love and enthusiasm for it. So thank you for that, mate. First off, how are you? How was your Christmas? Did you get to enjoy it all? Hello. Uh, thank you for having me. Christmas was weird which I guess it was for everyone. But, you know, it was fine. We had a nice time. But it was the first Christmas I've ever spent without my family, or without my parents, and my brother or sister. So that was like a subdued Christmas. But as I say, I'm sure it was for nearly everyone else. So we did what we could. We had a nice time and my family will do Christmas together in March or August or September, whenever it's safe enough to do so. Excellent, mate. We've got so much to get stuck into, and your journey is definitely a roller coaster. So, shall we just get started? Let's start the pod, mate, as we always do on Real Stories by talking about your journey into the theatre and the arts. So, firstly, what made you fall in love with the theatre, acting, singing, drama, and everything in between? Oh, good question. So, when I was nine years old, I think, I went to my cousin's graduation and he was studying at drama school in Liverpool and my cousin is much cooler than me and a little bit older well quite a bit older than me and going to his graduation was like I mean it was very boring because I was nine years old and you sit in a theatre and you watch people get up and shake hands and whatever but Paul McCartney was there because he's the patron of uh, the drama school and we were milling around afterwards and mum spotted him and like obviously did the good mum thing and like shoved me and my sister and my brother in his direction and was like you know have a photo and I guess that probably played into it a little bit but to see someone else already have like done that and the idea that you could go somewhere to just learn about acting and performing because that's the only thing I've ever really been any good at so I thought it was cool. I was good at it. I did obviously lots of like primary school plays and that sort of stuff. So I don't feel like I had much other option. Like I think a lot of kids had a lot of stuff that they wanted to do when they grew up and that changed all the time. But that didn't really for me. Like I'd settled on being an actor after graduation. So about nine years old and that didn't change at any point. 
And for you growing up, what was your first taste of theatre or the bit of it you were exposed to that made you want to create that dream of yourself and try and follow it? I mean, I grew up in a house that was full of like, first off, full of music. So my mum and dad are massive music heads, a huge amount of vinyl in the house and all that kind of stuff. So creativity in the arts generally I was exposed to right from the start. In terms of theatre, I think the earliest piece of theatre I actively remember going to see would have been the a production of The Snow Queen at the RSC in Stratford. It was like a school trip, so I would have been probably... I want to say eight years old or nine, probably again around the time of my cousin's graduation. And I don't remember that much about the show itself. I just remember the experience of going to the theatre and that being really cool and big and busy because obviously you're a kid and you're tiny, so everything's massive and there's just people everywhere. We went to go and watch people stand on stage and say things and the idea that everyone sits in relative silence and just watches someone talk is quite cool. And, you know, I was a very precocious child and liked to perform in the house anyway. So the idea that even more people would sit in silence and listen to me talk was obviously a huge appeal. As you grew up, what was it about drama and the theatre that you loved so much? And what impact did it have on your mental health looking back? Is it that escapism which gives you joy, the camaraderie maybe with other actors or, or something even deeper? I think it gives a sense of community more than anything else. And within that, that gives you the space to explore, learn and and develop as a person. And so much of drama when you're a kid and when you're a teenager and also when you're an adult is playing games and having fun. And that's some of the best ways to learn things anyway and to learn things about yourself. So I think that's why I loved it, because you're surrounded by people doing the same things you having fun doing it. And obviously, yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but playing a character provides its own form of escapism and work. But above all else, it's just a group of people having fun together. That's what makes it enjoyable. It makes makes you want to do it. You told me off air that writing is also something that really helps you here. How does writing, specifically scripts and crafting production ideas, supplement that positive mental health impact that acting has on you? I think writing is a very different discipline to acting, obviously, and it can be very cathartic. What I found with my limited experience of writing is that it's not always the stuff that you're feeling at the forefront of your mind that can come out during the writing. Obviously, that can. But when you sit down and if you really get into that right mindset or the zone or whatever you want to call it, where you can just sit and write and write and write, It allows a lot of subconscious stuff that was sitting somewhere at the back of your brain to come out and manifest itself. And the the play I'm working on at the minute has been really useful for that because it's a queer teenage love story. And obviously that's something that I associate with to a degree. So it's a different sort of freedom and it allows you to process your thoughts in a different way. And also the joy of writing is that you can write something and think it works and it might be a standalone piece or part of something else that you're writing. And then you can look at it the next day and you'll almost definitely hate it because that's what you do but if it works somewhere it works and if it doesn't you don't have to write for anything like even if you have a brief or if you're writing on a specific project if something else comes up that doesn't fit there it's not like everything you write has to be committed to memory or performance or to history like you can just go that was useful in the moment but I don't have to do anything with it that's why I enjoy writing You took your first step into the professional realm of acting when you did a foundation course in acting and drama in 2013. Cast your mind back a little bit if you can. How did that course help you, your career, and 
what perhaps did it not prepare you for in the world of acting and theatre? It's very much an introduction into the discipline of what the industry is like or what drama school wants you to think the industry is like. The main thing we were taught was that if you are early, you are on time. If you're on time, you're late. And if you're late, you don't come in. And they were pretty strict with that. Like the lessons would start, say we had a lesson started at 9.30. If you arrived at 9.30, nine times out of 10, the door would have already closed and very few teachers would let you in if you were late. The vast majority would sort of go, nope, no, sorry. There was a a guy in my class who turned up late for our last movement class before like an end of term showing through no fault of his own. Like he just had a moment where he forgot where he was supposed to be. Not as in like he was wondering, going where he was just, we'd had break and he was just enjoying break and hadn't noticed that we'd gone to class. Like complete human error, no one's fault. And he turned up and he was clearly stressed. He was like, oh, yeah, I'm so sorry. Walked into the room and our teacher just went, nope, sorry, see you next term. And that was it. He had to turn around and leave. And then he wasn't allowed to perform in the showing that evening. He had to sit with the teachers and, and watch us perform. That was a big part of it. You know, they didn't take any bullshit from anyone. And I think that's important because obviously you've got to learn what your industry is going to be like. But also a lot of us were children. You know, I was 18 years old. That's no age. I think... I regret the way that a lot of my course mates will remember me because yeah, that foundation course was only a year. We did a lot of learning, a lot of progress in that year. And I'm a very different person, thankfully, to who I was then. And obviously, the majority of those people, their lasting memories of me are how I was then. And there's kind of nothing you can really do to change that. Plus, you know, obviously, seeing them every now and again in person now as an adult, but you will go on to different things, and you will lead your own lives. And yeah, some of them stayed on at drama school for longer than I did and did another three-year course or whatever. And it took me a long time to realize that actually those people, they play a lot bigger part in my life than I do in theirs. And that's absolutely fine. But therefore, my memories of those people are very different to their memories of me. That sounds, you know, that sounds like a bit sad or whatever. But that is a huge part of it. In the industry, people have this term, I think they call it contract friends, which is where you are friends with people that you're in the cast with for the duration of your contract, for the duration of your production. And then you sort of just let each other go and go off into the world and you stay in touch with a few of them. And that's perfectly fine. That's kind of just how it goes. But that was my first experience of proper drama school education or acting or the industry, if you like. So it took a long time to figure out that's how it works. And it was a very intense year for me, very difficult year for me. And as I say, I'm a very different person now. And you kind of, it's a bit annoying to not (laughs) for everyone who was on that course with me to not have the memories of me now rather than they did then. Just building on what you said there about reflecting on who you were as a person, after 2013, you did take a break from acting to explore other career opportunities and, and grow as a person, like you said. What did you learn about yourself during this period and your mental health, do you think? I think the main thing I learned from it was what the actual world is like. And as a result of that, you learn more about yourself as a person. I learned how... Drama school is its own world and its own thing. And also, so is the acting industry, obviously. And it's the same with any job you do. Any industry you work in has its own rules and ways of being. And I think it's useful to see as many of those as you can. And by taking a break from what I thought was initially going to be one gap year from 
drama school that then became a lot more and then I never ended up going back. I learned how like office culture generally can be sort of this like a microcosm of adulthood all of its own that we think adulthood is when we're teenagers. And in a way, it's still like school. It's still like the playground and everyone's got their own little cliques and, and some people really work well together and some people don't. And some people will seem to hate you for no reason. And some people will love you or, or you don't like them and it, all that kind of thing. And I discovered from that that quote unquote being an adult is pretty much the same as being at school. We just pretend that it's not. And, you know, when I was auditioning for drama schools at 18, they say, don't be surprised if you don't get in at 18, because they like people with life experience. They like people a little bit older. I was like, well, yeah, okay, sure. But, you know, I've got life experience. I'm 18. Obviously, I do not. But you sort of now being 25, if I was to audition for drama schools again, as I've said, I'm a very different person now. I do have more life experience, whatever that means. And I would feel more prepared to go and do three years of intense training in the industry in which I work. And that's good and bad for your mental health. I got used to the world, if you like, a little bit quicker than other people that I trained with who then spent another three years at drama school. That's not a negative thing. They just stayed in education and I didn't. So I was like three years ahead of them by the time they came out. But they were also three years ahead of me in terms of training in in our art form and what we do. So there's it swings and roundabouts. And generally, I think it's a good thing for your mental health to start seeing the world as it actually is. But of course, that presents its own unique challenges. And I had fun taking the break from acting, but there was always going to be time to return, you know? You got back into acting in 2018 when you undertook a course at the National Youth Theatre. One thing you said to me off air really stood out. You said, it wasn't a case of me not thinking I was able to do it, but whether I was still good at it. Just tell me a bit about that course. Where do you think that thought pattern came from? And did you find out you could still do it? And how important a moment was this for you? Oh, the course was so good. So good. A friend of mine had done it and he put something on his Instagram story. So sort of saying, yeah, if you have an audition for National Youth Theatre, then you should. Anyone who reads this who's under 25. And at that point, I was yeah 22. I was turning 23 that year. And I'd had a glass of wine and I saw the Instagram story and I was sort of like, well, all right, yeah, like, yeah, sure, fuck it, whatever. And I didn't expect really to get anywhere with it. And you know, the audition process was really cool. And you know, the initial audition was quite weird because I was by far one of the oldest there. And my initial thoughts were like, okay, well, it's youth theatre. Is this going to be different to what I'm doing and what I have done? And like, is this going like, to benefit me? And actually, it really, really did. And then to get an, an offer of the place on their course for the eldest members. So it was like, I think, four week long course over the summer of 2018. It was just brilliant. I was working with people, again, at my age, who wanted to do what I do as well. And to be back in a room like that, where you're all working towards this shared collective goal was fantastic because I've been away from that for so long. You know, I met real lifelong friends, there were like three boys, James, Benji and George, who are unquestionably part of my life forever. And that's just really nice to, <laughs> to return to a room where people, as I say, think the same as you feel the same as you and want to create art, if you like, and work on theatre. And I just had been away from that for so long. And yeah, as I said, I, I knew I could do it. I knew I could do acting. But, you know, when you've been away from it for so long, I, I finished drama school in 2013, uh, 2014. I, I did one fringe theatre show, a couple of like rehearsed readings every now and again, like really like small scale stuff. But day to day was doing office jobs. 
And you just think when you spend long enough not doing something, you think, can I still do it? And it was nice to be reminded that it's, it, yeah, it's nice to be validated by other people. And when people say, yes, you're good enough to come on this course. Yes, you're good enough to work on this thing. And also when people are like, yes, you're good enough to be my friend or whatever. I know that's, that's quite a juvenile attitude towards it, but it is real. You know, we, we want to be liked. And National Youth Theatre did a lot of those things for me. So if anyone is listening to this that's under 25, then you should 100% apply. And you'll have the time of your life. It's brilliant. I want to talk a little bit here about drama school or acting schools in general, mate, because I had some amazing experiences at my drama school before I joined the older group, where I then largely experienced some pretty horrific negative ones, which almost put me off the theatre for life. Thankfully, it didn't. One acting exercise you did as a class was called Ring of Fire. Now, that's not the drinking version for any listeners, but it did have a really negative impact on your self-esteem and your mental health, mate. Can you tell the listeners what it entails, the story behind it, and then how it affected you? Yeah, so Ring of Fire was a game where my class, I think that was about 12 or 15 of us, we were all sat in a circle facing each other, and you had to go around the room, and it was one person's go every time, and then everyone else would say two positive things and one criticism. And it seems like such a trauma school thing to do. And like, to be fair, I got off relatively lightly. It is difficult. As humans, we obviously listen to negative things more than we listen to positive. And my feedback was from memory. I mean, it was like, you know, seven years ago now, but my feedback was generally all right. It was things like you, you can't do everything. You can't act and stage manage and tech and blah, blah, blah. You know, so like calm down. It's okay which was true to an extent at that point but actually when you're an adult and you're working in the industry you can and probably should be able to do everything so yes and no to that but there was someone else in my class who really really got it like as in I like, got a lot of intense feedback and there was one person who it was it was supposed to be constructive criticism but there was one person in the class who looked at him and just said I hate you I just I just I hate you and I have nothing nice to say about you which I think was a product of us being the ages that we were, because I know for a fact that if I asked that person now, he wouldn't say that. And I don't think he did hate him, but he just felt strongly and didn't perhaps articulate it. Like, you know, just like just didn't take the extra step that's needed to be constructive sometimes. And that was really intense for him. And he left the room and I went out and sort of spoke to him and figured out what was going on. And like, I think it is important to grow and develop as a person and be aware of things that perhaps you can improve on but in a much safer more constructive way than that again it seems so drama school and maybe that culture has changed now you know I, as I say I haven't been there for a long time and steps have been made so maybe they wouldn't play that game anymore I hope not because when you're that young and vulnerable anyway it doesn't seem like a as I say I, I got off relatively lightly but it's still intense to hear 12 or 15 people say two nice things which are you know fine but like generic and often quite similar but then all to be like yeah but here's this really shit thing about you that you really need to work on yeah that's kind of crushing in a way i talk about this long-running trope that in quotation marks 99 percent of actors are out of work with previous Real Stories guest Dan Dawes. And you had your own perspective you wanted to share on this too, because the realities of being an actor part-time or even full-time are not always understood by normal people, in quotation marks, are they? And there are a few platitudes that get trotted out to you in normal conversation. Can you share some of these with the listeners and the wider mental health implications they may have on you and other actors you know when they hear them? 
I think the important thing to caveat this with is that people generally are just trying to be nice and just trying to make conversation. As we all do when someone says what they do for a living, you try and find some sort of question about it that sounds like you're interested or sounds like you're aware of what they do, even if you don't. So it does not come from a malicious place. And I think it's really important to caveat that. That said, the go-to question when you say, oh, I'm an actor say, what have I seen you in? Or have I seen you in anything? And you're like, well, no, not unless you've seen some like, quite obscure queer theatre from 2016 in like a pub in London. Like, no, you haven't. And yeah, they mean well. But uh, the other job you get almost straight away, uh, the other question you get almost straight away is, yeah, but what's your real job? Or what's your muggle job is the term that we quite often use for the money job outside of acting. And uh, don't get me wrong, 99.9% of actors have those smuggle jobs, me very much included. But that's not the interesting thing. That's not what we want to talk about. If I considered that muggle job my actual job, then when they say, what do you do for a living? I wouldn't answer actor. I'd answer whatever it was I was doing at the time. And what it does is it instantly invalidates your way of life, your job, your career, your craft, your art, whatever you want to call it. And People mean it in a friendly sort of pokey way where they're like, okay, I know the realities of acting is it's quite difficult. And quite often you have to have another job. So I'll ask what that other job is. And I get it. But please don't do that. Because if I want to share that information with you, I'll share it anyway. And, you know, when you have questions like, what have I seen you in? It raises the question, I'm sure we'll come on to it, of like, how do you validate yourself as a performer or as yeah in your job when all that appears to matter to other people is what they have seen you in or what they know you from and also like if you're a stranger and I don't know you how the fuck am I supposed to know what you've seen me in because I have no idea what your tastes are I've no idea what you watch I've no idea what you go and see I don't know where you live like I might have been to where you go on a tour or I might not like short of just being like well go look at my CV go look at my spotlight and then let me know if you've seen any of these things the answer you have to give is well yeah probably not and whatever the big show is at the time people ask that you know people for a long time it was like have you been in Game of Thrones have you done Game of Thrones oh you should do Game of Thrones I mean just uh, like they've got everyone in it I'm sure if you just write to them you're like yeah okay that's how it works if that's how it was I wouldn't need an agent and I wouldn't be out of work or you know quite often or like it's like well have you done Doctors on the BBC or have you done casualty or if you've done the bill and you have to go well the bill hasn't existed for about 10 years so no I definitely haven't and again like people mean well and it's not the end of the world but when you constantly have your career questioned and belittled by other people it's just tiring and you end up saying when people say what do you do you say I'm an actor and you end up saying it in almost an apologetic way because you don't want to invite those kind of questions in and I'm very aware that what we do is ultimately quite an interesting job It is different. Acting is a lot of people's hobbies. And people always say, oh, God, I was so good at drama at school. I love drama. And that's great. I love that. And if you want to talk about how much fun you had had in drama at school, great. I'll listen because that's nice for you and you get to share those memories. But I took that and I pursued it and I worked hard and I'm out of work a lot, as most of us are. But I turned that into my career. And it's important, I think, for people to know and recognize that. So if people want a question to ask instead of what have I seen you in or what's your real job, you just say, that's really cool. What sort of things have you worked on recently? Or what kind of acting do you like to do? That's a question that comes up every now and again. And it's, you know, do you prefer film or theater or TV? And often the answer is, well, it's nice that you think I've done all those things. But ask those questions rather than just think about what you're going to ask and whether that (laughs) belittles the person you're asking. 
I want to discuss your acting career a bit now, mate. You've been in two major productions, Jeff Wayne's The War of the Worlds, The Immersive Experience, and Jude Taylor's new digital musical, Make Me Infamous. Tell me how you got involved in both of these, how they helped your career, and generally how they went. Uh, the Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, The Immersive Experience is possibly my favourite job that I have ever had. And I'm not going to say too much about it because we've obviously with COVID, we've had to be closed quite a long time. We're due to reopen later in the new year. So come and see it is what I will say, because it is like nothing else I've ever seen, like nothing else I've ever been involved with. And it's just, oh, it's so good. So come and see it. The, what I will say about it is it's been such a joy to be surrounded by such a brilliant cast. And normally with a job that you do, there'll always be someone in the cast that you don't quite get along with. And obviously you work together professionally and that's fine, but you're never destined to be friends and that's okay. Whereas I think in this cast, there isn't anyone like that. I genuinely love and like everyone that I work with there. So that is what I'll say about that show. Come and see it. It's so good when we reopen. Make Me Infamous is this really cool, fun, new musical that was reimagined as a podcast by Jude Taylor, the composer, and he and the production team made it into this podcast series. It is a fully-fledged new musical about a group of students who are studying to become supervillains. They are on a GCSE evil course, and it's really fun and different and queer and Ah, it's such a joy to listen to and the songs will get stuck in your head. I play a supervillain called the Large Fromage who makes nearly entirely cheese-based puns and sort of speaks with this big, deep bass voice. And it's really fun to kind of flex those muscles a little bit because playing a baddie is the best thing ever. Like, it's so much fun. And when it's someone who is effectively Brian Blessed but filled with dairy, it's just really fun. So, because I never play characters like that, to get to sort of come on and, and say, by the time I'm le- done with you and your town, all that will be left is debris and just silly fun things and that has such a good impact on your mental health because you're just working on a fun project and like Jude is a very good friend of mine and when you have a friend who is genuinely talented and creates this wonderful piece of art it is such a joy to be involved in them and and both the projects you war of the worlds and make me infamous are both very different to anything I've done before particularly this year with the podcast being made entirely in lockdown so none of us have seen each other in person we did one very early read through of it in about february i think in person and that was it so that adds more strings to your bow as an actor you know being able to learn how to work from home and create and submit and record and edit and all that kind of stuff so i think they both had a very positive impact on my career and you know on on me as a person and you should absolutely come see war the worlds and also download make me infamous because it's really damn good You also assisted your partner in his one-man production a few months ago. Now, I'm sure there are a few challenges when it comes to couples working together, but for you, it was a largely positive experience, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely was. Uh, So yeah, my partner, Linus, is also an actor and creative. And this production was the second time we've worked together. So he's done two one-man shows. The first was a pre-existing play with an unusual title called Awkward Conversations with Animals I've Fucked. And the second show that he did this year was one he wrote himself, and it's called How to Live a Jellical Life, Life Lessons from the 2019 hit movie musical Cats. So they both seem to have some sort of relative theme, but they are very different shows. And yeah, of course, working with your other half can present its challenges, but I really enjoy watching 
Linus work and and create because he has this work ethic that I've never seen in anyone else. Also, we have very different working hours. You know, everyone reaches their peak ability at different times of the day. And my peak is probably between 10.30 a.m. and 1 p.m., whereas his peak is usually about 9 p.m. till midnight. So we're working on very different clocks. And that's good and bad because, you know, sometimes when he really wants to discuss ideas, I'm half asleep, I want to go to bed, I can't talk about this now. But the creative ideas are very much his and that's his role. I am there to facilitate, uh, help figure things out, to do technical sides of things. And, you know, I will make creative suggestions every now and again. And if they're welcomed, that's great. And if they're not, it's fine because it's not, it's not my project. So, you know, it's neither here nor there whether my creative input is recognized and put into production or whatever. And quite often it is. But I know that I know I'm engaged to him, but it is joyous to watch someone work in the way that he does and to put together this stuff. And How to Live a Jellical Life, we sold out a London run in October last year, despite all the COVID stuff that was put in place. You know, we did a really COVID secure run, social distancing, masks throughout, one way system, hand sanitizers, like all that kind of stuff. 20 people instead of 60 in this venue. And, and we sold out. It was a really good run. And we were due to come back in the week before Christmas. And we were doing our tech rehearsal on the Monday. And halfway through our tech run was the news that London was going up to tier three. So all of our week of shows then became a one night only. So we did the Tuesday night run instead. And then the rest of it was cancelled. And we've got dates coming up this year for other places. Fingers crossed, should have another London run due to being Cambridge and Poole. But we're living in, again, I'm sure we're going to talk about it, but we're living in the realities of COVID at the minute, which has its challenges for everyone. But in our industry makes it incredibly difficult to put together any sort of committed, dedicated working schedule, which definitely has the chance to be quite stressful. But luckily, working with Linus, we're obviously working from home together a lot. But when we're done with work, we're done with work. And we still can sit down and just have a nice time together as well. It's not like we're constantly in work mode. When you are involved in a long run production, Joseph, or just taking on a challenging role in general, how do you create the separation between you and the role? And what tools do you use to maintain that separation whilst not burning out as well? It's a good question. And it's a really important one. Every actor has their own way of doing this. And for me, it's very much about costume. A lot makes a real difference. And that's not always something you have in shows. But when you do, I think it's really important to utilize that as much as you can, because when that costume goes on, that is a huge part of the character, a huge part of the role. And that really helps you as well at the end of a show to take the costume off, put it away, and that's you sort of done for the day. And all of this and so much about our industry sounds really wanky. And a lot of it seems to be based in stereotypes people have of actors. But a lot of it is true to a certain extent because it is genuinely useful. You know, just as you wouldn't, before you go and do an exercise routine, you have to warm up. And you have to cool down afterwards because that's how you look after your body. And it's the same with acting. People have these images of actors doing really silly warm-ups and doing weird stretches and making strange noises. And, you know, but but we do. And that's because our body is what we work with. It's our instruments, our tool, and you have to look after it. And your mental health is just as significant a part of it. And when you have the time to warm up and get ready to perform, as well as doing all the physical work, you're also getting yourself in the right mental space to go on and perform. And when you come off stage or you finish a, a performance, you can't just go, well, okay, that's me done for the day. Of course, you can click out of it to a certain extent, but you still need a period of time afterwards to allow you to 
effectively to come down from the performance of what you've been doing. You know, when you finish a show, I find it impossible to almost everyone else I know as well, but to just sort of go home and go to bed because you can't because your your adrenaline's running and, and you're processing everything that was going on in the show. So you have to just take a moment to ground yourself again and sort of go, okay, that's that done. People work hard in any job to try and leave work at the office. And my office might be a little bit different to most people's, but you have to do that because as you say, otherwise you will burn out and burnout is really dangerous and it's really unhelpful for you as a performer. And I've definitely, definitely experienced it in stuff that I've done. And I can see the impact it has not just on my performance, but on me as a person and how I am to work with. So you have to keep yourself constantly in check to try and avoid that happening. You mentioned it earlier, but I want to address the elephant in the room, which is the impact that COVID has had on the arts. How has it impacted you personally, Joseph, and the mental health of you and other actor friends you may have? Our industry is so precarious at the best of times. And to (laughs) be in a position where your work just disappears overnight, as it has for so many people in all over the place, no matter what you're working in, is terrifying so war of the worlds we closed in march of 2020 and you know you then spend the rest of the year not with your job and most of us are self-employed and some not all of us qualified for the self-employment support and a lot of us was seeking out things like universal credit there was thankfully a lot of independent funds set up by it was like netflix and sam mendez and people like that putting together money for creatives in need in some ways, maybe people in my industry, maybe we were better equipped to deal with it than some others. I'm not saying that we're better than anyone else, but when you spend most of your time in your industry, either not in work or when you are in work, you're looking for the next job and it's a constant process. And we're taught quite early on to deal with like rejection and, and periods of not having work or having to sort of scrape through and do whatever we can. So it's not a complete shock as such, but... <laughs> Very rarely are you out of work for this long, but also your entire industry is out of work and nowhere's open and theatres are closing all over the country and not reopening so they can't afford to survive at the best of times, let alone now. That has a real impact because you're watching your industry and your livelihood and your friends you know, collapse and not survive the pandemic. And again, I don't in any way want to try and belittle the realities of what we are living in because it is a nightmare and things are looking up, but we've got a long way to go. And that's really tough. And yeah, and I think seeing your friends suffer as well makes it all the harder. And it's important that we have to talk about it and share our feelings with each other, because that's how we get through, because we're all in the same boat. But it's just, you want the best for your friends and those you know who are genuinely so talented and creative and, and were doing incredible jobs and incredible stuff that is just suddenly the rug is pulled from underneath them and you'll find yourself in this weird position like what the fuck do we do what do we do how do we pull through and how do we get going again when we can and doing linus's run in december of the cat show that was a really good example of how theater can keep going in a time like this but it's still exhausting as it is for all of us but it's just very weird to watch your industry which is so often disregarded, but struggle to survive in this. And people, I think Carrie Hope Fletcher did an interview for the stage a little while ago, 
where I'm paraphrasing, but she said something along the lines of, if our industry is worthless, then switch off Netflix. Because people will so often talk about how the arts isn't really that important or like, why does it get all this money? But what did everyone do in lockdown but go to go to Netflix, go to the BBC, go to Channel 4, go to YouTube, go anywhere to stream entertainment. And that is what we do. And you cannot have it both ways. You can't disregard or belittle the arts, but then rely entirely on them to get you through this terrible situation we've been in. And I hope and I pray that people will view what we do a little bit differently when we can return to some degree of normal. I doubt that they will. And I, that's, I know that that's being pessimistic, but we are creatures of habit. And when we can return to how we used to be, of course, we're going to do that because it's comfortable. But I really, <laughs> I really hope that our industry is treated with, treated with more respect, like the respect it deserves, because we all absorb culture and art in some way, shape or form. And without money and without support, it won't happen. And then we'll wonder why it's not there anymore. And just finally, Joseph, on a positive note, for anyone listening and wanting to go into theatre or might be thinking about doing it, what message or advice would you give them from your experience? Do it. It's the best thing in the world, even though most of it is some sort of living hell. It's so good. It's just the best. Like, ah, yeah, do it. And like I said earlier, the amount of people that say, oh, I loved drama at school or like, oh, I, I really wanted to be an actor. Look, I didn't grow up in... I know that I sound very much like I grew up in a very privileged livelihood, but I didn't. This comes from, well, from drama school, which again, I know sounds privileged, but like it's the same as university. It, you apply through it through UCAS, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. I sound like that because of it, but I don't come from an especially privileged background. And um, something I'm really, really keen on getting across is the idea that the arts should not be this exclusive middle class upper middle class rich boys kind of club because it has been for way too long and some of the best art and, and creative stuff coming out in the industry at the minute is from from artists of working class backgrounds and it doesn't matter what your background is if you think you're good at it or you think you enjoy it then do it and pursue it and whether that's as a profession or whether you want to just do it as a hobby like find an amdram group find like especially this year there's zoom play readings everywhere just put it out on twitter ask what people know and people will find stuff for you if you're young enough apply for the national youth theater because they are all about making arts accessible to everyone and they have bursaries available like you know finances should not hold you back be prepared for a lot of like rejection and periods without work but like for the love of god do it and it is not it's never too late in inverted commas to try it like it is fun and it is people's hobbies and i get to dress up in costume and play as someone else because sometimes people give me money for that and like what a joy what a privilege it is to be able to do it and if you want to do it then do because you'll have <laughs> you'll hopefully have a lovely time we've talked about your theatrical journey joseph let's dive a bit deeper and talk about your own journey in a bit more detail so i ask all my guests this question first walk me through your early life teenage years childhood adolescence and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Joseph we meet here? A very different boy. So I grew up in a village in the countryside with about 500 people. It was the kind of place where you know everyone by face, if not by name. My village primary school had 99 kids in it when I was in year six. So it's small town. 
small village kind of upbringing. My secondary school was in a, a town about 20 minutes away. And that was about, I think, a thousand kids. So that's a big jump. I've got a sister who's four years older than me. So she was already there, which was obviously like obviously very helpful. But, you know, then you've got a completely different environment to deal with and all these new kids and people come from very different backgrounds than you. So you kind of have to cope and work with that in a very new way. I think I had a generally happy like upbringing in terms of sort of mental health moments to pinpoint. I don't think that sort of really... I mean, I know we'll talk about it in a couple of minutes, but so I realized I was probably different at the age of 14 in that I knew I liked boys as well as girls. And that comes with its own challenges. Probably the biggest sort of mental health experience I had was when I was at drama school when I was 18. And that was a really, really tricky year. Yeah, I'd say I know we'll talk about all those things in detail, but generally sort of bigger picture, a very happy, relatively easy upbringing with a loving family. But yeah, they're like a very different person. And we all change a lot as we grow up. But I don't look at my previous self with like special fondness or anything, because I think he had a long way to go and thought that he knew everything and very much wanted to share that. And he didn't. Like you said, your bisexuality came to the forefront when you were age 14. You also experienced a lot of bullying when it came to your bisexuality as well in school. Can you tell me a bit about this journey, the bullying itself? You also experienced some self-harm, which we're not going to go into detail about. And then this period of your life generally and how you felt during this point. Yeah. So I came out, if you like, on a school trip. I was in a dorm room with three other of my classmates, I think. And one of them decided to say that he thought he was gay. And I said, okay, I, th- I think I'm bi. Because at that point, I did definitely like boys and girls. It was a little bit before this that I can sort of pinpoint this exact moment where I saw a boy and, and felt things. I was at a drama thing, funnily enough, and saw this boy. And it was like a wave sort of hits you of like, oh, okay, I'm seeing this boy in this completely different way that I've ever seen a boy before. And in fairness, like a girl, I obviously found girls attractive and I'd had girlfriends and, and did after I came out. But it was just this very new, intense feeling. And yeah, and you sort of go, oh, okay, I get this. I think I see what this is. And yeah, so I came out at 14. I think my problem was, was that I thought I was the only person in the school that wasn't straight because I was the only one making a big song and dance about it. And that's not to say that wasn't necessarily a good thing, but like there were a lot of other people who just weren't <laughs> weren't as loud about it as I was. And I think that was probably to their strength. I wouldn't go back and tell my younger self to not come out or anything, but maybe I would say, look, we can handle this and tackle this in a different way. You don't have to be the one to sort of be at the forefront and be at the coalface and, and take this battle for everyone. And yeah, yeah, of course, the bullying came with it. And a lot of it was like anonymous and online because there used to be a website called Formspring, which then like, I think a similar thing popped up a few years after called Ask.fm, where you could just send anonymous questions to anyone that had a profile. And obviously, anonymity gives people a place to hide behind Obviously, what that does is then you question everyone that's around you and who these people are. And like, you because at school, you know who the idiots are who'll make a stupid comment and you can deal with them in a certain way. But when it's anonymous, you don't know who it is. And whether rightly or wrongly, you start to think, okay, well, actually, is this coming from people who I think are my friends? It might be, it might not be, but it's a lot easier for people to do it there. 
and that does make things very difficult. And then, yeah, you had this period of self-harm and it was a lot less major than it was for a lot of other people. But it makes you pretty miserable because not only are you dealing with all the hormones that you deal with as a teenager anyway and being very angsty, but then you've also got all of this stuff on top of you and you're still going to school every day and like having a nice time with your friends. But there's people around who don't like you or I had a my first boyfriend when I was in year 10 and there was someone who I think we were on the school field at lunchtime and like just existing just being and there was a, a kid who came up and was like oh yeah you're you two are the yeah like you're together aren't you like oh no I better not he said something like you I better not get my dick out in front of you then you were like well I'd like to think you wouldn't anyway why would that be a thing that you do and it just little things that way you're just like oh my god it's just tiring and that starts right from the beginning and uh, I wasn't gonna back down or like let them win or whatever but it was a very frustrating period of my life and when I eventually came out to my parents and told them about the bullying and self-harm stuff they were super supportive and so was the school all credit to them when I eventually sort of spoke to a teacher that I trusted sent him an email and the next day I was sat in his office with a couple of the kids that I'd named sort of one by one he was going to get them coming into the office and seeing him with me and them and asking me how it felt to be treated like that by these people and they did stop all but one who wasn't that bad anyway but I think is probably is probably just a dickhead and I doubt he even remembers how it was or what he did and you know fine whatever I made my peace I did got involved with the charity in Manchester who at the time called the Lesbian Gay Foundation then now called the LGBT Foundation through a campaign they were doing about anti-homophobia and I did a bunch of assemblies for my school about it and again, like, I know that that's a, it's a good thing to have done. And it's a good thing to do, obviously. But again, I think that comes from like my precocious nature as a teenager, just being like having to do everything all at once, having to be out and loud about things, which is a good thing, but doesn't always have to be that way. I'm glad that I did it. And I do think it did have a positive impact and the school was super supportive, but I wouldn't necessarily be in a rush to do everything in exactly the same way again. I'm right in saying you were told the stereotypical trope that you were bisexual because you didn't want to come out as gay, i.e. your true self, and that you were dipping your toe in the water before submerging fully, to coin a phrase. You also said to me off air that you felt slightly conflicted here, as you said those kids were effectively proved right as you did come out as gay at 18. However, no one should be told who they are before they know themselves. Can you just tell me about how those tropes affected you? And is that a perspective you share about not being told who you are before you know yourself? Yeah, 100% it is. You know, I already feel like there's been big steps made here. And the generation below me who are already being far less bothered about labels generally to do with sexuality and gender is super exciting to me. I love it. I really, really love it. And yeah, I think that was definitely a difficult thing was <laughs> I did identify as bi for about four years. And everyone's experiences are unique and you can't speak for anyone else. And I can't pretend to speak for the bi community. All I can do is talk about my personal experience. But I do think that bisexuality is belittled so frequently by people who say things like, oh, make up your mind, or you're just being greedy, or like, okay, so when you have a boyfriend, does that mean you're gay now? The one thing I did used to get asked was like, oh, so is your ideal threesome a guy and a girl? And like things like that was just like, it's nobody's business. It's nobody's business. And you're absolutely right that no one can be told who they are or how they identify. It is no one else's business. If someone is unsure and they want to talk to other people and get advice, then that is their decision. But 
your identity is yours. It is not anyone else's to decide. And yeah, I now identify as gay. And that was almost harder to say, not because I had any issues accepting myself, but then, yeah, you are sort of saying to all the people that said, no, you are gay, you are gay, you're not bi. They are then proven right in a way. And they're not because at the time that they were saying these things, I didn't identify as gay and now I do. But also, who the fuck cares? Like, why do I care? Why do I care whether I was proving them right or not? And why do they feel it was their place to say anyway? So I do think that bisexual people suffer quite high levels of erasure or their sexuality is belittled or invalidated and it is mega frustrating. I think this is a slight tangent. So recently I I organised or curated an evening of of content for the National Youth Theatre called The Queer Edition, which was um, original pieces from LGBTQIA plus members of the MIT. And there was a couple of people in there who identified as pansexual. And when I was first hearing that term, i.e. not considering gender in a point of attraction to other people, when I was first hearing that term, we weren't really having as much of the discussion around gender as we are now. And so I thought, okay, I mean, sure, like uh, you, absolutely, if that's how you want to identify, identify in that, but that is effectively bisexuality by another word. And it isn't, it's not at all. The two very different things, because bisexuality implies, in my opinion, implies the attraction to two genders, male and female, whereas pansexuality does away with that completely because there are more than two genders and gender is a social construct. And that is really exciting to me. You know, I feel like the issues that I experienced and I'm discussing, hopefully, are already changing and have already changed to a degree with the generation below me, as I say, because the whole conversation is different now. And that's in such a short period of time. You know, I'm 25, came out of 14. So yeah, in the, in the course of 10 years, that's already a very, very different conversation that's being had. So hopefully, this is already different for people. When you did accept your gay sexuality fully and embrace it, mate, how did that feel? And what point did it arrive? Was there a specific moment? Or was it more gradual as you got older and explored it more? And as you did it, were there perhaps interests that ignited or hobbies that you got into that reflected your gay sexuality? It feels, it felt really nice. You know, it's nice to have a sense of who you are and how you identify and to be comfortable with that. I don't think much changed in reality from how I was living my life, but it was just a thing where you go, okay, good. I've made my peace with that thing. This is who I am. This is how I can introduce myself to people. I can make peace with that and move on. And I mean, did it change things or like different hobbies? I don't think so, but it was coming at a time where I was changing as a person anyway and becoming a quote-unquote adult. So I guess it just went hand-in-hand with who I was as a person and and what I was doing at the time. But, you know, it is a sense of relief to be comfortable in how you identify and feel like, okay, that's that thing done. I can move on and get on with everything else now. You told me off air, mate, you had an identity crisis at one point in your life, which derived partly from your shunning of stereotypes associated with being a gay man and the expectations straight people have and maybe even some gay men or gay women have about gay men. So i.e. being effeminate or gossipy or best friends with girls, you know, the Will and Grace angle, if you will. Can you tell me more about this and why you didn't feel you wanted to conform? I mean, well, I think the identity crisis lasted years. I think it probably still continues to a certain extent. At school, I would say things like, yeah, of course I'll be your gay best friend. Or like, yeah, we can go shopping together. Why was I saying that? Because I don't really like shopping that much. I have very little interest in being someone's quote unquote gay best friend. I think I was saying it to deflect a lot of stuff because if you play up to 
a straight person's expectations of who you are as a, a queer person, that makes your life easier. So that's why I was doing it. You know, I think when I would see gay men who followed that stereotype of being very loud and effeminate and like camp generally, I rejected that because I was like, well, that's not how I want to be. That's not who I feel I am. And I'm not going to be that gay person. There's no reason or rhyme for that other than self-hatred and internalized homophobia. And every time I would see an element of that in my personality, I'd be like, nope, that's not like, why am I doing this? It's not who I am. I don't want to play up to that. But also it depends on who you're around. As I say, so much of our time, I think, as queer people is spent is spent pleasing straight people or just trying to fit in and make your life easier. So when I was working in an office with predominantly middle-aged women, I found myself playing up to this stereotype that this particular group of them, I'm not saying all middle-aged women or anything like that, but this particular group of them seemed to enjoy where I would sort of be this person where I'd go like, stop, stop it. No, really? Darling, how are you? And you're sort of like, why am I doing this? Like, <laughs> And that is an element of my personality and that's okay. And there are elements of my personality that are loud and camp and flamboyant, but not all of them. And actually it doesn't matter. And I'm perfectly happy now with that element of my personality. And I'm just as happy with that as I am the like quieter, more reserved angle, because we all have different aspects of our personality. And it depends on who we're with, where we are, what's going on. And and it just took a long time to make peace with that, that if that is a part of my personality, that's not a bad thing. It takes a lot of rewiring to sort of process that and just let yourself be. We spend so much time trying to be something else for other people and that only eats into our own views of ourselves, and that's not a healthy way to be. I think it's a great point in the pod to point out that the gay community is not a monolith and you also experienced some intra-LGBT discrimination within the community. Can you give some examples of that with the listeners if you could and how that affected your mental health? Yeah, I think... For a community that seems quite keen to like push away from labels, at points, the gay cisgender male community seems very keen to label itself once you're in there. So there, you know, you've got different tribes and are you a twink? Are you a twunk, which is like a muscly twink? So your twink is like a young, hairless gay boy, quite pretty. You know, are you a bear, which is like a large, hairier person? Are you an otter, which is a thin, hairy person? You know, so many things, which, you know, all come with their own different tropes and stuff. And like a twink is typically seen as more like bitchy or my like give you a look when you go into a club and be like, you know, like, do I want to be seen with you or whatever? And all this kind of stuff that I don't associate with. And some people do. And that's absolutely fine because that's their place in the community, not mine. And I'm not here to belittle that. But there was one point where there was an older, there was an older gay man that I know, different generation to me. And I painted my nails at one point. He sort of like, why are you doing that? Why are you painting your nails? That's what women do. And it's fine. And like, I know he meant it in a kind of jokey way, but I was like, oh, for God's sake, like the, the difficult bit is supposed to be the coming out and dealing with straight people, if you will, not dealing with the people that are then supposedly in your community. But different generations have different attitudes. And that's exactly the same, whether it's generally as a population or whether it's within the LGBTQIA plus community. And everyone sees things differently. And there is a lot to learn from generations that have come before us. We owe them a great deal as queer people for allowing us to what you're fighting for us to be able to live in the way that we live. And it's important that we continue that fight for generations to come after us. And there is a lot to learn and to listen and accept from both 
sides. You see this happen every now and again in society where people who were seen as progressive at one point have decided that they were they've been progressive enough and very quickly their views and opinions can become outdated and people don't look in them the same way anymore. They don't quite understand why that's happened. Being progressive is an ever forward looking thing and especially within the community people need support and you people look to older members of the community for mentorship and for validation to an extent and just support. And you have to be able to give that because, yeah, otherwise we damage ourselves as a community and we are supposed to be supporting each other from those who don't like us. In the gay community, how big an issue do you think mental health is and toxic masculinity as well? So, for example, I watched a film by Ben Hunt, the BBC's LGBT correspondent, which highlighted the trend within the gay community to look bulky, muscle bound, shredded. And by the way, that's a trend that's existing within straight men as well. And a lot of people our age, Joseph. Have you felt that? And what other examples of that can you highlight for the listeners? Yeah, definitely. And as you say, it's not exclusive to the LGBT community. It's, it's absolutely not. I think toxic masculinity is, is a massive issue everywhere you go. But within our community, you know, Ben's video made a very good point. And people talk, I think, a lot in culture about like being beach body ready, quote unquote. And for a lot of gay people, that is then changed slightly to become pride ready. And like, you have to look good for pride. You have to be wearing a certain type of outfit and you like, the pressure is on to show a lot of flesh, but only if you look a very particular way. And it's exhausting because like, I'm not out of shape, but like, I'm not in great shape. I don't particularly have muscles. Like I have a belly. I look like a, I look like a person and that's absolutely fine. And you definitely feel that pressure, but I think I think we just feel that pressure as young men in society rather than exclusively because I'm part of the LGBT community. It of course shares that challenge as well. But I think the problem is also with for me being attracted to the same sex is that you know, you see pictures of or you see people that you find attractive and not only do you find them attractive but they're the same sex as you and part of that is like well I could look like that or why don't I look like that and that brings its own issues you know and like I think you know it's the same with any man looking at a picture of a man who's in better shape than him you just feel inferior you sort of think well well I guess maybe if I got myself to look like that then that would fix a lot of things and like it might but it probably won't and if you want to and I definitely want to I just hate working out and I really love eating carbs so you know if I would love to look like that and maybe I will at some point if I get my shit together you know I really I was going swimming quite a lot before COVID and I really really miss that I'm really desperate to get back into that so maybe I will get to a point where I look like that and that will feel like that'll be great for me I'll, re- I'll be really happy with that but it doesn't solve all the problems. And if you're doing it solely because then you will feel validated or that that is how you should look, that's a problem within itself. Before we talk about your experiences of imposter syndrome and panic attacks, mate, one final thing on this section I wanted to discuss is a particular Twitter trend, which you gave your own spin on, but which also highlights a deeper issue here on subconscious bias. Tell me a bit more about this, if you could. Yeah, so there was a Twitter thing that was going around a little while ago that was at what sounds like a compliment but isn't. And my take on that was when straight people say to you, which does happen quite often, oh, I wouldn't have known you were gay or I had no idea you were gay. And for so long, my generic response to that was thank you. And you sort of go, why on earth am I? Why is, that th- why is that a thing to be thankful for? Like, why is that a positive thing to be able to quote unquote pass for straight? And I guess it comes from that 
constantly that we talked about earlier to like fit in with the straight community because if you if people don't know you're gay you avoid trouble and no one wants trouble you just want you want to avoid trouble and like if i hold hands with my fiance in a public place i'm very aware hyper aware of every single look or second glance or any sort of reaction and more often than not it's probably just people looking as in like when we're out and about we look at everything because we take everything and we register what's around us and i don't think people think twice about what they're actually seeing but sometimes people do and sometimes people will turn their heads or someone spat in front of us once in the street not at us but in front of us and you're sort of like oh and that was just off oxford street and if you pass for a straight person then your life gets a lot easier. And I think that's why I was taking it as a compliment. But it isn't. It's not It's not, not a compliment. It's just a weird thing to say. And again, I, th- I think it comes from people not quite knowing, not, n- not not knowing how to talk to gay people. But again, it, it's just something, it's something very much that sounds like a compliment, but isn't. And they say it, but and they mean it in a nice way. It's not anything. We don't need to say that. It's very weird. And I hadn't really thought of it that much until I saw that and that popped into my head because it's just, it's so weird. I know people mean well, but it, it's just not a thing we need to say. Let's move on from that. Yeah, we've moved past the need to say that to gay people. I want to talk about imposter syndrome now, mate, and your experiences of it. Now, for anyone who hasn't heard of it, just tell them what it is and then how it affects your mental health. So my experience of imposter syndrome is a complete feeling of inferiority and also kind of level of fear and stress and anxiety in that at any moment, whatever you're doing, someone is going to realize that you shouldn't actually be there. You're not qualified to be doing what you're doing. They've made a mistake. They're meant to give the job to someone else, anything like that. And I think it's probably something that a lot of people experience, but don't necessarily know that there's a name for, or they don't want to talk about. I think it's pretty widespread as an issue, but it's a pretty major thing for me, particularly if I'm doing something that isn't acting, because acting and like creative stuff is the main thing that I'm good at. I can do other stuff and I can do other stuff well, but I am an actor first and foremost. I'm a creative. That's what I do. So when I'm working in office jobs that at times can be like quite serious, high responsibility stuff, and you're sat in an office in a shirt and trousers, surrounded by other people, dressed smart, typing on the computers who seem to be working on stuff constantly all day but you're not quite sure what it is you know you just I'm like how am I here like I'm in my early 20s or like mid 20s now with these people who are older than me who earn more money than me and have been doing what I've done or doing what I'm doing for longer or have like studied to do what I'm doing and so you are just waiting and like anytime any sort of senior person asks to have a chat in any way shape or form <laughs> it's never bad it's never bad but when they ask you are uh, your immediate thing is like i'm fired that this is it i'm out they've realized something i've done something terribly wrong i've and that's it and now i'm not going to have a job and yeah i think because i was away for acting for so long it was in every job i was doing but then and then it started happening in jobs i was doing in acting as well and i was going oh god okay i wasn't quite great in that rehearsal then or like I don't feel like I'm finding this character at the speed that I should be. Uh, I feel like they didn't mean to give me this role and no one's really saying it. But at some point they are going to go, oh, I'm so sorry. We actually, we contacted this person first and they said they weren't available, but now they are. So we're going to replace you and don't worry about coming in tomorrow. 
And it is, to a large extent, it's an underlying subconscious thing. It doesn't necessarily come to the forefront a lot. It's only when people say, like, can we have a chat or let's have a meeting or whatever, or you get a phone call from your boss out of the blue. But it is quite tiring. It's quite a tiring thing. You have to work hard on it to settle that down. Because if I wasn't meant to be doing what I'm doing at any given moment, I wouldn't be doing it. Like if I wasn't meant to be working in that particular office, I wouldn't have got the job through the interview. I wouldn't have been booked for a shift to do this. I wouldn't have passed the audition to do X, Y, Z. I have to think logically about it, which I think we we hate doing as people because it's far easier to indulge in the negativity and the anxiety. It's a very real thing and it can be quite difficult to tackle and to, to keep going. You've also had experiences of panic attacks. Can you tell me when you first start experiencing them and how they affect you? Because as we know, some people experience panic attacks very differently to others. I'm quite lucky. I haven't really had one in quite a while now. They probably started when I was about 18 or 19. And as you say, everyone experiences them differently and it can be quite a triggering thing to talk about. But for me, they're quite constricting and almost suffocating to an extent. And it has this weird sensation where I feel like my body is about to fold in on itself. It's quite scary. It's like, it's almost, it's, when they're really bad, it can be like a fit. But as I say, I'm quite lucky. I haven't really had one for quite a long time, but they are frightening. And the most important thing I learned was that when they happen, there's not a great deal you can do about it. And it's a case of get, of getting past the one or the two or however many there are and just getting through that particular moment and then knowing what to do afterwards like knowing who you speak to knowing what you do to ground yourself back in reality again it's about the coping mechanisms because and once i accepted the reality that and even working to like reduce the likelihood of it happening before if i could feel certain things that feel like it might be coming on that was really important but to an extent and it's it sounds strange but to an extent to not be afraid of it itself because as I say, there's nothing you can do, but knowing what to do either side of it really helped. And I think that's what helped reduce them as well. And just finally, Joseph, if there's anyone who's listening who has had experience of panic attacks or imposter syndrome, what message or advice would you give them from your experience? Do some reading about them because you definitely aren't the only person. And there's some unhelpful information out there, but there's some really useful resources of people talking about their experiences and what they do and what works for them. For me, like meditation really works and a technique called labeling within that, which is where you, when you're doing a meditation and you notice your mind has wandered, if you're thinking about something else, you stop and you say to yourself thinking and you label that that's what you were doing. And then you come back to the meditation, come back to focusing on your breath. Or if you're distracted by a sensation in your body, you say feeling, and then you come back to the focusing on your breath. I take that into my everyday life. So when my mind wanders to a negative place or something like that, I will catch it, stop, notice and say thinking and come back to whatever I'm doing at that point. So find things like that that work for you. Know who your support network is, whether that is family or friends or whether that's someone like the Samaritans or Childline or anything like that. It doesn't always, people I think, well, I don't have people around me I can talk to or feel like I don't want to bother people. And that's okay if that's the case, because there are still other places you can call other people you can speak to. So find what those are for you. And they are temporary. They're temporary experiences and they don't define you and they're not your whole life. And that definitely makes it easier to cope with for me. Our final topic of conversation, Joseph, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly, and you can definitely include circumstances or you can exclude them if you want. How would you say your mental health is at the moment? 
I think all things considered, with everything that's going on and like having not had Christmas with the family and COVID and not having a job and, you know, <laughs> it getting dark early. Pretty good, mate. Yeah, I think I'm all right. How are you? I'm okay. Yeah, at time of recording, I'm still recovering from uh, from COVID. So I've got a few more days left of quarantine. But yeah, all things considered as well, been ups and downs for sure. I think the anxiety of thinking you have it or seeing a symptom and then sneezing or losing breath when you run for a train. I think the anxiety of thinking you're getting it and then getting it, well, luckily in my case, it wasn't that bad. But yeah, the anxiety of thinking you're going to get it was definitely worse than having it. But I can't speak for everyone, obviously, on that. So yeah, it's been definitely up and down. It's been a pretty crap year. But hopefully this year will be will be a lot better, for sure. What age do you think you were, mate, when you first realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I think I always knew that they were in my head, but in a way that made it harder because if it's a physical thing, you can take a painkiller or put a bandage or raise your leg above your head or whatever. So I think I always knew it was in my head, but when it's really bad or like when I was a teenager and it was really bad, you feel like your brain's expanding and you can't escape it because it is in your head. So that presented its own set of challenges. So yeah, I think I always knew, but that does make it harder because you initially think until you have the mechanisms to deal with them, you think you can't escape them. And tell me the story behind the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health. Who was it with? What impact did it have? And at the time, did it feel like a big weight had been lifted? Was it a massive thing? Or did it seem fairly insignificant and quite normalised? Um, I think it was quite a big thing at the time. I think the first proper sit down, this is how I'm feeling about things, conversation I had was probably with a housemate when I was at drama school. I'd left class early, I think I'd gone home, and I just texted him and said, when you're back, can you just come in and just sit on my bed while I hide under the covers? And fair credit to him, he did. And yeah, I think it was a big deal at the time, because before you do it is the worst. And as soon as you actually talk, it suddenly is easier for me. And hearing things out loud that I was worried about in my head, there's something about saying them that you realise that they're less significant than you thought they were. So it was a big deal until I started doing it. And it didn't fix all my problems straight away, but it alleviates a little bit of that pressure. And it definitely made it easier to do it in the future. And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So these could be things people might say, sound, sensations, social environments, and you can also include positive triggers as well as negative ones. I think I did a lot of work on accepting compliments. I just realised that sometimes people just say nice things. When you do a performance and people want to say nice things afterwards, the first thing was, my first thing was always to say, oh, thank you, but this thing or X, Y, Z, and sort of instantly point out why they're wrong. And I, yeah, I got I got a piece of advice from from an actress called Louise Jameson that I was in a play with. And she said to me, just say thank you, because people are just saying a nice thing and you might not feel that you agree with what they said, but you can just say thank you. And when I started doing that, felt a lot better. So in terms of positive, people giving you compliments is a nice thing and forcing yourself to, to agree with them, even if you don't, is quite useful. A negative one, this, sound, this is going to sound super weird, like super weird, but old women are a trigger. Yeah, I know, because so my mum's mum passed away in 2012. Like I think that was the first time I was because my dad's parents had passed when I was younger. And yeah, I, I was younger. So it was, you hadn't had as much time with them and you don't comprehend it in quite the same way. But so when she passed away, I would have been 17, I think. 
and that was just that was like the biggest thing part of like grief that i'd had to experience up till that point and sort of learned that grief is a rolling process you know and it, it comes in waves and obviously that's eight years ago but if i <laughs> it's not all the time and it's not all old women but sometimes i will see an elderly woman and that will be a weird trigger for me where i'll suddenly have a, a memory or sense memory certain smells that i associate with her or her bungalow or like whatever things like that and the best thing i can do at those points is to talk to like Linus, my other half and, and just say oh like this is a feeling i've got at the minute because of this or whatever generally it's those two things sometimes i just have a bad day and there's no triggers for it but as do we all sometimes sometimes you're just miserable and you just want to spend all day in bed and that's better after that what tools and methods do you use in your own life joseph to improve your mental health or help you feel better which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? So this sounds um, very big picture and a lot easier said than done. But take the principle of it rather than what I'm actually saying. A big thing for me was realizing what things made me sad and not doing them or not getting involved with them. Because I think we love to damage ourselves. We love a bit of like self-flagellation and it's not helpful. Like assessing things are going, am I doing this thing because it actually makes me happy or it furthers me in some way or does it make me a bit fed up? And then trying to not do those things or get involved with them. Things that do work are definitely meditation. I have always like done meditation for a bit and then forgotten about it and gone away and then come back. But so for the last, I think three months, I think, or four months, I think three months, I've been meditating every day. And I found an app that really works. I really like Headspace, but I didn't quite stick with it enough. I found an app called Balance, which really, really works for me. It personalizes your experience. It asks you some questions before every meditation and then what you want to get out of it generally. And it changes the meditation to suit those things for you. I found that to be really, really helpful. So I recommend that. And there's an app called Pause, which I recommend as well, which is very good for like grounding. And if you feel a bit heightened or anxious it's a ball of color on your screen and you have to hold your finger on it and you have to move your finger along as it moves along the screen you can't go too fast or too slow and the and the color will get bigger and fill up the screen it plays like soothing sounds in your head and it just is like a focus grounding exercise so it's like an immediate in the moment thing i really really recommend that i think that's it mainly like meditation and taking what you learn from meditation into everyday life and a lot of people journal as well which really helps i do writing stuff like that and also talking just talking to people about how i feel about it and asking how they feel i'm just as interested i want to know other people's feelings about things and that helps you assess your own in turn Toxic masculinity is a big topic on this podcast, Joseph, and it's one we try and break down a lot. Hopefully in a few more years, a few more pods, toxic masculinity will be in a very small minority. Perhaps it won't even exist in an ideal world. What would you define it as and what examples of it have you experienced in your life that you can share with the listeners, whether that be homophobia, man shaming or something else? I think, yeah, I think toxic masculinity is the inability for someone who is male to be themselves or how they feel they actually are because of expectations of what it is to be a man or to present as a man. Yeah, I think homophobia, man shaming, all that kind of stuff, it all ties into it. But I think that's my ultimate definition is just not being able to live as you want to live. And I hate it. <laughs> I think it's one of the biggest issues that we face at the minute as, as men. And it is being discussed, but not enough. I also talk a lot about this idea of positive masculinity, Joseph, and hopefully in a few more years and a few more pods, 
masculinity will just be described as positive masculinity and it'll be described in very positive terms and maybe it won't receive some of the criticism that it does in certain quarters right now. How would you define positive masculinity and what qualities do you think a man should have to exude to be described as positively masculine? Is it, for example, self-awareness, self-confidence, empathy, accepting of others? What can you tell me here? I think there's a bigger picture to this and I think... (laughs) I think that we should free ourselves from masculinity as a term generally. And I think we should think about being positively human rather than positively masculine. And that sounds like exactly the kind of thing a wanky actor would say. But I think the concept of masculinity is is an outdated one. I think it is more useful to think about being positively human or, or as a person, because the concepts of masculinity come from previous generations, both good and bad. And actually, if you think about a gender plural world where if you want to ident- if you choose to identify as as male or masculine traits in inverted commas that's fine if you don't that's fine if it's somewhere else that's that's great i think there are qualities that are good about people generally like self-awareness like caring for others being open about emotions wanting to develop and grow as people to explore culture to explore the arts to read to anything thing that things that develop us as people are not exclusive to our gender or traits that we may or may not associate with those so being positively masculine i think is being positively human and i think that makes it easier to process that's a really interesting answer and there's no right or wrong answer to that for sure how do you support friends in your own social group who may have mental health issues themselves or just be going through a poor period of mental health whether that be men women or anything else they identify as? I think I'd just be a good friend. And a role of a good friend is to talk to your friends and check in with them and and talk about everyday stuff and talk about the weather, but to ask questions about each other and how people are feeling or ask open-ended questions. But you can be specific times as well. Like if you're a friend and you're aware that a friend has gone through something a little bit tricky, you can ask them things. You say, how do you feel about this thing? Do you want to talk about it? And if they say no, then fine then if they want to talk about it, talk about it. Like you have to, it's about giving space and time, but not just checking in when things are bad, because by that point it can be a bit too late. And I think in in my community, I think people are more open with their mental health. You know, a lot of friends quite openly would talk about being on antidepressant medication or talk about highs and low points of their mental health. But it's just as important to ask them about it when they aren't openly talking about it. Be the person that that you want your friends to be to you. It's actually so simple when you think about it. And just finally, Joseph, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all genders, all sexualities feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? I think people should be doing exactly what you're doing, Freddie. And having platforms like Vent, podcasts like this, like writing, just, yeah, I think we have to be open, as open as we want to be as individuals about our mental health. And then people can choose to share what they want to share. And also, people don't always have to share stuff out loud to find comfort in the words of others or to find advice. Some people are private people. And they don't want to talk about things openly, but that doesn't mean they can't find help or seek advice, you know. So just (laughs) do what you're doing. And I think most things will fall into place. 
Well, I think we have come to the end of this episode of Real Stories. I want to say a big thank you to Joseph for sharing his real story and for letting me check in with him. As always, thank you to everyone who's tuned in. Remember, if you like what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, work colleagues, anyone you know about it. Or if you're feeling generous, write us a review, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or support our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. That's vent spelt V-E-N-T and then help is H-E-L-P-U-K. Stay tuned for the next episode of Real Stories. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Thank you.